This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, including the arts and music. And that brings us to one of our favorite recurring subjects, the story of a song. And by the way, go to our website, ouramericannetwork.org. We've done the stories of Light My Fire, Jesus Take the Wheel, Give Me Shelter, The Rolling Stones' epic song, There Goes My Life by Kenny Chesney, which has got a remarkable backstory, Georgia On My Mind, and my favorite, Why Me, Lord, by Chris Christopherson, him telling the story of how that song came to be. Here is Greg Hengler with another edition in our ongoing series. Pop quiz. What's the appropriate amount of times to think about an ex who has just walked out your door? The correct answer, once. Don't Think Twice, It's All Right is a song written by Bob Dylan and released on the 1963 album, the freewheeling Bob Dylan. The song is a classic on an album of classics that introduced Dylan to the world at large as its poignant, knowing refrain has been burned into our hearts and minds for decades. From his singles Positively 4th Street to You Go Your Own Way and I'll Go Mine, Bob Dylan has proven to be a masterful songwriter of kiss-off songs, adding yet another element to rock lyrics that punk rock would perfect. Dylan said of this track, A lot of people make it sort of a love song, slow and easygoing, but it isn't a love song. It's a statement that maybe you can say something to make yourself feel better. It's as if you were talking to yourself. Dylan wrote this after his girlfriend went off to Italy to study at the university and left him in New York. Dylan reimagined their separation here as him leaving her. She can be seen walking with Dylan on the infamous cover of the Freewheelin' Bob Dylan album. The song is all the elements of a classic, the plaintive vocals, sweet and doleful finger-picking, cathartic, hillbilly harmonica, and a melody that builds momentum like a freight train. And there's those classic lines. Goodbye's too good a word, babe, so I'll just say fare thee well. And of course, I gave her my heart, but she wanted my soul. And lastly, there's the way he made up the word, node. Suitably, it's been covered by everyone from amateur guitarists and dime store folkies to Eric Clapton, Willie Nelson, Merle Haggard, Peter, Paul, and Mary, Bobby Darin, Dolly Parton, Randy Travis, Cher, Johnny Cash, Gordon Lightfoot, Elvis Presley, Burl Ives, Waylon Jennings, the Allman Brothers, and Frankie Valli in the Four Seasons, to name just a few. Glenn Campbell covered this for his 2017 album, Adios. His daughter Ashley said this of her father's interpretation. To play it on guitar was always so much fun for him, and that intro lick was the main thing. Well, here it is, Bob Dylan's Don't Think Twice. It's all right. Well, it ain't no use to sit and wonder why, baby. Even you don't know by now. And it ain't no use to sit and wonder why, baby. It'll never do somehow. When your rooster crows at the break of dawn Look out your window and 
I'll be gone You're the reason I'm traveling on But don't think twice, it's all right And it ain't no use in the turning on your light, baby The light I never knowed And it ain't no use in turning on your light, baby I'm on the dark side of the road But I wish there was something you would do or say To try and make me change my mind and stay But we never did too much talking anyway Don't think twice, it's all right So it ain't no use in calling out my name, gal Like you never done before And it ain't no use in calling out my name, gal I can't hear you anymore I'm a thinking and a wondering, walking down the road. I once loved a woman, a child, I am told. I give her my heart, but she wanted my soul. But don't think twice, it's all right. So long, honey, baby, where I'm bound, I can't tell. Goodbye is too good a word, baby, so I just say fairly well. I ain't saying you treated me unkind, you could have done better, but I don't mind. You just kind of wasted my precious time. Don't think twice, it's all right And great job, as always, by Greg. And by the way, Bob Dylan won the Nobel Prize for writing and a songwriter getting that kind of accolade. Well, he deserved it. He's one of America's great writers, and we spend a lot of time on artists here on this show. And his Nobel Prize performance, he actually wrote up a statement, wouldn't actually receive the prize in person, but instead put a recording together of what his literature, because he saw his songwriting as storytelling, what his storytelling was really all about. It is magnificent. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and type in Bob Dylan on the search bar, and you can hear one of the great acceptance speeches of all time. Bob Dylan's Don't Think Twice, It's All Right, the story of a song here on Our American Stories.
Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And from 1993 to 1997, Mike Judge captured the spirit of American adolescence, epitomized by two cheap and crummy animated cartoons. Here's Greg Hengler with the story of the highly popular television show, Beavis and Butthead. (laughs) The stupid and ugly have one advantage in life. Teachers expect nothing from them, so they can fly under the usual indoctrination that accompanies education. Uh, what's this crap? Thus, the stupid and ugly, if they aren't entirely stupid, have a greater chance of being original. They're allowed to speak the truth because no one cares what they say. Because they are stupid, they are free. Beavis and Butthead Two supremely stupid and excruciatingly ugly pubescent males who live somewhere in the Southwest were the biggest phenomenon on MTV since the heyday of Michael Jackson. Their laugh, low and breathy variations of (sighs) (laughs) superseded Wayne and Garth's not as the comic catchphrase. An album and a blockbuster movie were made and their merchandising campaign swept across American malls. Mike Judge is the creator of the television series Beavis and Butthead and co-creator of the television series King of the Hill. He also wrote and directed Office Space, the now cult film about IT workers that premiered in 1999. Here's Mike Judge. I'd been interested in animation since I was a kid. I took a cartoon class at the YMCA. At the time, I didn't know what the signs of a junkie were, but now looking back, I'm pretty sure that my cartoon teacher was a junkie. Here's writer David Felton. I think the name Butthead came from some friend of his they called Iron Butt, who just liked to have people kick him as hard as they could in his butt. Beavis and Butthead I had drawn in a sketchbook and I kind of had them lying around and there was this Sick and Twisted festival that Spike and Mike were doing and I thought, I don't know if I'm going to have a career but I may never have a chance like this again to just do whatever I want, get as out there as I want. Sometime after I'd done the first two shorts I thought, okay, what should I should animate something with these guys and I just went for a walk and came up with the whole idea for the short and the names and everything, I don't know, in probably like two or three minutes. <laughs> I, I remembered a kid saying something about frog baseball, which is kind of a sick game, you know. I guess I was thinking about these just out-of-control 14-year-olds that have known growing up. <laughs> that would be cool. Beavis and Butthead was tested in front of a focus group in 1992. Here's executive producer Abby Turkley. We wanted to to develop it as a series. We tested it. It tested through the roof. I didn't even know what a focus group was. I remember Abby Turkuli calling me and saying, um, you know, we showed it to a focus group up in Chicago, and I've never seen a reaction like this. Best reaction I've ever seen. It was just funny to see, because I'm hearing my voice going, you know, and then seeing these kids going, huh. This said to be continued. Would you like to see more? Yeah. In fact, one kid stayed after and said, can I buy can I buy this out of the tape machine? Okay. Could you like record the tape for us? You you want a copy of the tape? Okay. Here's Judy McGrath, former president of MTV Networks, turned member of Amazon's board of directors. And I thought, okay, I've been watching focus groups for, you know, ten years. I've never heard anyone say, Can I buy the tape? 
and so it was frog baseball. We tested it with women as well in separate groups, uh, and I think the women were cooler at first. I hated it. Absolutely hated it. It was horrible. It was irritating, irritating to look at. I just thought it was awful. Uh, you just weren't reaching us, dude. I remember Mike's face when I uh, came up to him and I said, guess what, we got the money to do 65 episodes. Well, he turned white as a ghost and said, I can't do 65 episodes. Uh, what? And I said, don't worry, we'll get help. Have you Heimlich the victim? <laughs> no way. <laughs> Boy, the, uh, the first season, uh, they were supposed to have 22 episodes on March 8th and they had two. So we went on the air with two episodes. It was a show that was every day. And they were horrible. I mean, the first two episodes were awful. I don't know why anybody liked it. We cobbled together an episode out of two of my shorts and a bunch of videos. It's not just about writing. It's about writing stupid, which I felt, felt was a hard thing to do, really. It's like you have to go back to the place where thinking begins and stay there. Do you think that's funny, butthead? I hadn't even thought about ratings going into this thing. Remember after the, the first episode aired, and I thought it was awful, and I was like, gonna go bury my head in the sand, and uh, Abby called and said, we got a one last night. <laughs> I was like, What's a one mean? Uh, you know, and they said, well, usually, you know, that time slot is like a 0 .6, 0 .7. We got a one, and oh, good. Then the next night it was 1.2. The next night, it's the same episode airing over and over again. <laughs> And by Friday, it was like 1.8. The first week it went on the air, probably the third night, we got phone calls from five or six movie studios saying, you know, let's go right into production and make a movie. We heard from everybody. Retailers wanted to sell the clothes. Winger was going to reunite and go on the road. Warner Brothers wanted to make a live-action Wayne's World-type movie. You know, right away it was, uh, can you give me a Beavis and Butthead? So we literally put the brakes on everything for a while. At first I was thinking of just, they're these two guys who uh, are just around each other all the time. They don't have a lot of other friends or any other friends. And so there's just these inside jokes that just keep on going to the point where they're just kind of laughing all the time. Okay, Armstrong. Here. Armijo. Present. Baca. Yo. Butt kiss. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's wrong with you two? We've been in school over seven months now, and every single day when I call Daniel Buttkiss's name, you guys have to laugh. <laughs> Is it really still that funny? Doesn't it ever get old? Are you going to laugh for the rest of your lives every time someone says the name Buttkiss? <laughs> <laughs> that does it. Principal's office now. Here's head writer-producer for Beavis and Butthead, Christopher Brown. They were clearly self-destructive. You've had destructive impulses, right? Uh, no. <sighs> but no matter how miserable their existence were, let's face it, they weren't living a great life. They didn't have a, a nice home. They didn't have a lot of money. <laughs> money. 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 <laughs> Girls didn't respond to them. Hey, baby. <sighs> Other kids made fun of them and beat them up like Todd. But... They always managed to enjoy themselves. I mean, their laughter came through everything. Even when Todd kicks their and they're going, you know, oh, this sucks. You s they follow it up with a laugh. Todd's cool. Yeah. 
thinking life, huh? <laughs> <laughs> they are trying to figure things out, and they, they sort of, in their own way, philosophize about things, which is what's really great to write like that. I bet they put all the stuff that sucks on in the morning just to, like, get us to go to school. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's working. Usually I would start with the voice and then do the drawing. This one I started with a drawing and I didn't know what they would sound like. And um, I just drawn ha 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 on there. Um, I started doing that laugh and I was kind of like going like, this is reminding me of something. Didn't think about it till probably two years into the show that it was, there was a guy at my high school. He was uh, really smart, stoned all the time, but he would just, you'd see him in the hallway and I would always see him when the hallway was empty and he'd just start like, he's one of these guys that he'd start going, ha ha. Hey, Mike. <laughs> and so when I was do, when I would do the voice, I would just kind of do the, <sighs> and I would get I would be doing it sort of to get into character to get the voice sounding right, and then I'd go, well, that kind of sounds funny that he's just laughing all the time anyway. <laughs> 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 the Beavis laugh. There was a guy who was uh, was actually in calculus class, and he was a really smart guy. He's uh, now a nuclear engineer. Hope he doesn't figure out who he is <laughs> that I'm talking about him. But he, uh, we had a hot teacher, which was unheard of back then. She was a former Dallas Cowboys cheerleader. Uh, anyway, he would get really excited, and he just like he was biting his lip all the time and just kind of going like, <coughs> <coughs> like laughing at everything she said. So I started out with that laugh, and then I just kind of made his voice sound like the laugh, just like raspy, you know. <laughs> That's right, everyone. If we all work together and respect one another's space, we'll get through this crisis with a newfound sense of community. Get out of the street, you long-haired panty waist! Mr. Van Driesen, that was probably that was probably my favorite character other than Beavis to, to do the voice for. When I started doing that voice, I wasn't quite sure where I was getting it from. And then I remembered, I used to be a musician, and uh, I played with Sam Myers. And there's this guy from the Santa Barbara Blues Society there, and he was interviewing Sam. He just had this way of talking. He said, um, I remember him saying something like, Sam, it must have been really wonderful for you, having grown up in the Deep South, to be able to travel to Europe and experience some of their culture and share some of your culture as well. And when we come back, more of the story of Beavis and Butthead. This is Our American Stories, and we're covering the story of Beavis and Butthead, and I just love that line, you have to go back to the place where thinking begins and stay there. And that was the mindset Mike Judge and his team had to put themselves in. Let's go back to the rest of this story and return to Greg Hengler. Let's continue with Beavis and Butthead creator Mike Judge and the show's cast of characters. They say great art is difficult to understand, but easy to enjoy. (laughs) Very good, butthead. That's right. I wanted to have this this hippie teacher who just believes that teaching can solve any problem. The, the, only, the problem with teenagers, it's all education. So it's always funny for me to see Mr. Van Driesen just try so hard and 
believe that they can be changed and that not only do they not learn from his lessons, they usually learn the wrong lesson from what he's saying. Why don't we each tell what impressions we took away from the museum? <clears throat> hey, buddy, what did you take away? <laughs> boy, boy, what I wouldn't give for five minutes alone with those little bastards that took my mower. Mr. Anderson, there's probably been five or six people in my life that talked like that. I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, actually, and it always seemed like every middle-aged authority figure had a Texas accent. I had a paper out when I was a kid. My brother and I had one. You'd go collect at the end of the month, door to door back then. We went up to the door, and uh, the guy looked at us, you know, and, he, and so it was our first month collecting. He says, well, you ain't my paper boy. And my brother said, yeah, well, I know. Your paper boy quit, and we're the new paper boys. And he, well, I know what my paper boy looks like, and you ain't my paper boy. Finally, my brother said, okay, well, if you don't pay, you know, we're going to have to cancel your cancel the paper. And he said, oh, I'm going to get the paper when the real paper boy comes. And finally he swallowed his pride and he phoned in a subscription. And <laughs> Boy, I tell you what, Dusty, I felt like a one-legged cat trying to bury turds on a frozen pond out there today. Whoa, it's Todd. <clears throat> I know, I know. <clears throat> Actually, I think Sam and Chris first suggested the idea of a, of a guy who uh, beats the crap out of him, but they think he's really cool. To me, Todd reminds me of this. Uh, we had a family down at the end of, the, of our block when I was a kid, and the dad was a truck driver, and a couple of the kids had gone to jail, and they, they were teenagers while we were 10 and 11, and the middle one would just terrorize us. He'd come by on his motorcycle, ride on our lawn, patch the lawn, just scare the shit out of us whenever he could. I would like nothing more than to kill you both with my bare hands. There was a, a band director in ninth grade, I'm pretty sure he was an alcoholic, and he would just, he smelled like liquor in the morning, and he, he was just always, there was just, he was kind of shaking, always angry, always wound up. There was just this noise coming out of him. He was, oh, 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 what are you doing? Uh, watch your m mouth, you little sons of... Ah, oh. Here's head writer-producer for Beavis and Butthead, Christopher Brown. This is starting to suck. <laughs> Do I get into heaven or not? There were Senate hearings in the fall of 93 where uh, Senator Hollings cited us as, uh, as an evil, basically. Was it Buffcoat and Beaver or Beaver and something else? Uh, so clearly he was well-informed. <laughs> Well, I can see you boys aren't like the usual hooligans hanging around here. Like these two fellas, uh, Buff, Code, and Beaver. Boy, they've been nothing but trouble. Trey and Matt, the South Park guys, I remember them saying that Beavis and Butthead to them was like the blues, which was a really high compliment to me because it's, it's that kind of thing where it's just, it's the same thing over and over again, but it's good. Here's South Park co-creator Trey Parker. I remember uh, right before South Park went on the air, actually, Mike took us out to give us advice because he's just that cool of a guy. And uh, he, uh, he was sitting there going, well, you know, don't, uh, don't let people take advantage of you because <laughs> they're dumb. What's your problem, Beavis? I said stop. Here's rapper Snoop Dogg. First time I seen Beavis and Butthead would probably be, you know, one night I was falling up out of the studio and I came home and uh, just put the TV on MTV. And I peeped it out, and I was tripping because they was acting a fool. Shut up. You know what I'm saying? I just was tripping off how the two little dudes was acting. At least we have, like, lots of friends. Uh, not really. Are we healthy? 
Here's writer Larry Doyle. Mike could make almost anything sound funny. That's a very hard quality to do. I thought that Mike could make even the lamest line sound funny. He could say, butthead saying, make it snappy. And there's just something about the way he said it. And, it, you know, it helped a little bit that butthead is a little bit of a lisp. You men want a date. Uh, yeah, we want two of them. And make it snappy. Yeah. <laughs> Get the kite, Beavis. Cool. <laughs> when I was doing the this profile for Rolling Stone, I remember that uh, Patrick Stewart, Jean-Luc Picard, was a giant fan of the of the show, and he he happily talked to me not only for the article, but I'd say for about a half an hour afterwards about what episodes I had written and what his favorite episodes were. Oh no, we cannot allow ourselves to think that. Here again, it's Trey Parker. The point of the show, you know, was the great satirical look at sort of where a lot of teenagers in America were at the time. And, and it really was, I think, a very scathing, very harsh, uh, and, and almost a, a very open your eyes, people. And, and, you know, now I know Mike en enough to know that there was a lot more behind it, you know. And, and Mike is a, a very good guy and a very cool guy. And he actually you know, was, was trying to say something, you know, that, that this, this is starting to be our youth, and if we're not careful, this is going to be our youth. <laughs> yeah, I'm starting to feel it. <laughs> you know, Beavis, it doesn't get any better than this. <laughs> something that's good, it doesn't matter how great, it doesn't matter how slick it is, you don't need Disney, you don't need these sweet graphics. If something's funny and something's good, you can have it look that crappy, and, and it inspired us in that way, just to go, let's just do it ourselves, we'll do it with construction paper if we have to. It really got us into this conversation about satire and how there was no good satire out there, and, and we wanted to do the same thing Mike did. I always reference TV I grew up on because that's the, that's still, I guess it's whatever age you are, you're going to, you know, the thing that really cements itself in your head is the first stuff you liked on television, and I, I love the Beverly Hillbillies, Leave it to Beaver, Andy Griffith Show. There's actually a line you could draw between Beavis and Butthead and Andy Griffith in terms of the style of the way the comedy worked. Mm -hmm. Even though the topics were very different, the, the character comedy was very much the same. Oh, hey there, Master Cleaver. Aren't you supposed to be in school? Well, I guess so. B but all I know is I'm supposed to come in here and buy some cigarettes. Hey, you wouldn't be buying these for Eddie now, would you? Gee, how'd you know? <laughs> you know, if you look at it from a comedy math point of view, it's really very old-fashioned kind of humor even though at the time it was upsetting people with the topics that it was. I mean, it was, they were just dumb guys. And that's a real, there's a real long tradition of dumb guy comedies. <laughs> you guys aren't drunk. You're just stupid. Here's former president of Viacom, Van Toffler. I think it's really about um, being true to what, you know, teen boys do and the prism through which they see life and particularly innocent, one, innocent ones like those two. I mean, they're really base, and whatever they feel comes out of their mouths. And um, I sort of was that when I was a teenager, I'd sad to say, but everyone knows Beavis and Butthead. You could relate to it, animated or real. They were part of your life at some point. To me, Beavis and Butthead, when it's good, has that thing, it's a ridiculous premise. Three Stooges, it's the same thing over and over again, but I can keep watching it, Cheech and Chong. I don't, you know, you just kind of want to 
be there with those guys, and, and I kind of hoped that Beavis and Butthead would be in that category. I'm just glad it's finally over. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, really. At least now we can get on with our lives. <laughs> And great job, as always, by Greg Hengler. The story of Beavis and Butthead. It's Mike Judge's story, too. And, of course, he gave us South Park. And, my goodness, what a contribution to American culture. Both of these silly, stupid. The Three Stooges, of course, being the driving force behind all of this. And stuff like it. Teenage adolescence boys. Mike Judge, Beavis and Butthead, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and now a story from our own Monty Montgomery about one woman's transformative journey. Christina Dent grew up in the capital of Mississippi. I grew up in West Jackson uh, in a wonderful, happy home. I grew up in a Christian home and just had a really happy childhood. My mom homeschooled me and my brothers all the way through high school, and I grew up in a community that had a lot of crime in it. I would lay in bed at night and hear ambulances and gunshots as the two sounds I remember hearing. I went through a lot of anxiety as a child. Because of that, our neighbors were held up at gunpoint while we were home, and our neighbors didn't have a phone, and so they came over right after it had happened to use our phone to call the police. And that happened when I was about eight or nine. And that set off for me a, a lot of even deeper anxiety than I kind of already had. And that was uh, hard. I begged my parents to move out of state. I thought maybe if we went somewhere else, I would feel safer. I thought that was just how it was and there wasn't really anything we could do to change that. I grew up always thinking tough on crime was the way to go. So I, I got there by saying there's crime in my community and I don't like that. So we need to be tougher on crime to make that crime go away. And I associated anything related to drugs in with that, just be tougher. If we can just get tougher, if we can just lock more people up, then I wouldn't hear these gunshots, I wouldn't hear these you know, police sirens. That was my framework and I never really knew much about it. I wasn't politically involved. I was always voting. Felt like that was really important to do, but never really understood what was happening or what maybe could be different for me and for kids like me. After getting married, Christina and her husband had two children of their own before deciding that they wanted to start adopting. And they nearly did taking their chances on two toddlers. But while that door closed, another one would open. I had never been interested in foster care. Even in my interest with adoption, I wanted nothing to do with foster care. But now that door had kind of been open and we had to consider, you know, if we were willing to take those two kids in, why couldn't we be willing to take another kid or two from somewhere else in? And so we ended up deciding we were going to foster through the state and we would just kind of see where that went. Maybe it would end with the children going back home. Maybe it would end in adoption. 
we were open to either possibility and just thought that would kind of be a temporary thing that we would participate in. And so we went through about a year of getting certified and then we got a call out of the blue from our licensure worker. And she said, congratulations, Mrs. Dent. You guys are licensed to be a foster family. And I said, oh, this is great, thank you. And she followed that right up with, we have a baby that we need a foster family for and can we bring him over now? And we were completely unprepared for that because we had been slogging through the licensure process for so long, we thought it would be months before we still were even approved to foster, much less actually had a, a child come into our home. We went home and we got everything ready and we're texting our family and saying, there's this baby coming this afternoon. And they brought this little boy over to our house and we became his foster family. And that was the beginning of four and a half years of foster care for us. My husband got a call about 18 months after we had taken that first baby and he called me and said they have another baby they need a foster family for and I really feel like this time we need to say yes I just feel like God has this child for our home and I said oh I don't know this feels really overwhelming I already feel overwhelmed I homeschooled my children and I just thought, I don't know that I can do this again with an 18-month-old, with two older kids, with homeschooling, and a new baby. This would be crazy. But I thought, you know, my husband really feels strongly about this, and it's never going to seem like the best time to have another child in your home. So, okay, we'll do it. And they brought this new little baby over. He had just been released from the hospital after his birth. He was born premature. And so he was tiny, he was just uh, about five and a half pounds. He was also the son of a mother who used drugs during her pregnancy. And the social worker brought him to our house and she said, oh, it was so sad when I left the hospital with him, it was like a funeral. His mom was there, the NICU nurses were all there with her, everyone was crying. And I felt this shift of something inside of me, this feeling of, wait a second, that's not right because a mom who would use drugs while she was pregnant couldn't love her kids. How, how, does, how does that work? So here you're telling me this child was removed from her custody because she used drugs prenatally, but she's also crying as he's taken away from her at the hospital. That does not fit what I think about moms who would use drugs while they were pregnant. But through that experience, I met the mom of one of our foster sons. And her name was Joanne. He was at her house for a couple of weeks and then we had his first visit with her. So I hadn't met her at this point, but we had the first visit with her at the local child welfare office in Canton. And so I had drove up there with our other children and our new little foster son. And I popped his car seat out of my van and I turned around in the parking lot and across the parking lot is sprinting this woman with tears streaming down her face and she runs up to me and she just starts kissing 
the baby, who I'm just kind of standing there awkwardly holding his car seat. And she's talking to him, and I felt this shift again of what is going on here because this isn't what I thought was real. Now, I admittedly knew nothing about addiction. It had never come close to me, and so I only had what I kind of picked up from our cultural narrative about addiction, which is bad people use drugs, bad people become addicted to them, and we should be suspicious. And so that's what I thought. And I did feel very suspicious. I thought maybe, maybe she's just putting this on. Maybe she just wants to make me think she's a great mom and loves her son so that somehow I'll put a good word in with the social worker and that's gonna you know, make things better for her. And so she got to spend her one hour of allotted visitation time with her son in the little side meeting area with one couch and a couple toys in it. And I went to the local park and played with my kids to give her some privacy while she was with her son for that time. And then I came back and picked him up and we went back to our house and Joanne left for inpatient drug treatment a couple hours away in North Mississippi. But she would call me from treatment. She would call about once a day. They would you know, allow her to make a phone call. And she would call me and she would say, can you put me on speakerphone? And I would, and she would sing to her son over the phone. And again, this growing sense of something is not right, because what I'm seeing here is a mother who loves her son deeply and is also struggling with a complex, serious health crisis. But what I believe is that moms like her don't love their children. And I could start to follow those dots and say, that belief is part of what I have to believe to support moms like her being put in prison, which I know is happening every day. Not just moms, but moms, dads, sons, daughters, brothers, sisters. There are people using drugs and struggling with addiction that we're arresting every day, and I knew that. And so the more that I got to know Joanne, the more I saw her love is real. Her love for her son is real. When she asks me to let him sleep with a particular little animal blankie because she wants him to still be able to smell, to smell her, and she had had that with him in the hospital, that's real. She cares for him. She loves him. She wants him to remember his mom. She's working hard so that she can regain custody of him and parent him and raise him. I could see as I looked at what would this do to Joanne and to her son? What would it do if we put her in prison for 10 years? while her son grew up without a mom, if he lost the ability to have a future relationship with his mom. With Joanne in treatment, we had the potential for a positive outcome. And we know that not everyone who goes to treatment is able to stay sober. Not everyone who goes to treatment and is sober is necessarily able to parent. But I could see that the only way that that could happen for Joanne and for her family is if she wasn't in prison. In prison, there's no opportunity for a positive outcome there. It is a nuclear option on a family. We grew up in the 80s together. We're almost exactly the same age. We're both white women in our 30s in middle-class families. We both were homeschooled, kindergarten through high school. We made some different choices, and those choices led to different outcomes. But I could see more and more as I got to know Joanne that really those choices were choices I could have also made. And they, I, my life could have had very different outcomes. And it wasn't a difference in fundamentally who I am and who Joanne is that is the difference in where we are now. We're the same kind of person. And I saw Joanne as a mom like me.
And you've been listening to Christina Dent and her beautiful story. By the way, we love telling adoption stories because, my goodness, that kind of unconditional love, the world needs a lot more of it. If you have an adoption story, send them our way. They're some of our favorites. We actually spend a month during National Adoption Month digging in. The world needs more like it. I just thought that's the way it was. She talked about her early childhood in a tough neighborhood, hearing shots and her tough-on-crime mentality being forged, and then meeting Joanne and it changing her life. And by the way, I love that the husband said, it's never going to seem like the best time to have another child in your home. And but for that call, she would have never met Joanne. Her life and her thoughts about such people would have never changed. Christina Dent's story, a beautiful one, a Mississippi story too, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. In 1938, German scientists learned the power of splitting an atom, and with that, they gained a huge head start in what was truly the first nuclear arms race. But instead of a stockpile, the race was to just get it right, and then maybe they could replicate the results. In the town that housed the bulk of the work of the Manhattan Project, Oak Ridge, Tennessee, there was a single photographer, Ed Westcott. This is the story that led to the end of World War II and the one man that photographed it all. Here's Arthur Richard Cook with the story. In August of 1934, President Hindenburg of Germany died. Chancellor Hitler moved quickly to consolidate the office of president and chancellor and molded it into a new position as dictator. His new title was Führer. A national referendum weeks later was approved by 90% of the voters. Meanwhile, in Nashville, Tennessee, Ed Westcott's father, after saving for a year, bought 12-year-old Ed his first camera. They found a used mobile lunch wagon, which they renovated into a darkroom. Family, friends, and neighbors could get film developed for 50 cents a roll. He was largely self-taught. He started working with portrait studios in Nashville while still a teenager. There were clues in East Tennessee in September of 1942. A press release published in newspapers said the military was building an ammunition testing range outside of Knoxville, Tennessee. This partially explained the condemnation of 58,000 acres by the government. The reports in newspapers were a total lie. Farmers who owned the land were totally in the dark. Surveying crews asked 
permission to be on their land for a few hours. In November, owners found a single piece of paper attached to the screen front door, announcing that the owners of the land had three weeks to vacate the property. It was being confiscated by the federal government. Many of these families had farmed their land for generations. The farmhouses were bulldozed down in a matter of days after the eviction date. The ammunition testing range excuse was done on purpose. It discouraged squatters and it worked. The families viewed their farms as a personal garden of Eden. The land provided for all their needs, both physically and spiritually. Most families never, ever got over the quick, harsh eviction. They were compensated for their land, but hundreds of farmers were looking for new farmland at the same time. Prices went through the roof. Many of the farmers ended up working at the industrial plants, which were built on their former land. Meanwhile, 160 miles to the west in Nashville, a 20-year-old man had a decision to make. Ed Westcott was a photographer for the Nashville office of the Army Corps of Engineers. The office was being closed. Ed was offered two options. He could transfer to the Alaskan Highway to document the construction of it, or he could go to a new installation outside of Knoxville. Ed had spent all of his entirely too brief life in Tennessee. He had recently gotten married and had a newborn son. Knoxville it was. He accepted the job in November and would start in January of 1943. His employee number was 29. Little did he know that in less than three years, he would create the most important photographic archive of 20th century American history. Ed said there wasn't much going on when he reported to work. Putting in roads and rail lines was the first order of business. Ed said if this was a war project, it wasn't much of a project. Ed dove into his work. From January 1943 until the end of the war in August of 1945, he took somewhere between 15,000 to 20,000 photographs. In an era where everyone has a camera on their cell phone, that doesn't sound like much. 16 to 21 photographs every single day. But it was a different time. The cameras were heavy, and often he needed heavy tripods to mount his camera on. During the war, Ed had a 4x5 speed graphic, which used roll film with six exposures on each roll. And then he had an 8x10 Deerdorfer, which used a single sheet of film for each photograph. If he was shooting inside, he had to use bulky floodlights, which took a long time to set up, and oftentimes for just a single shot. And at the end of the day, he had to go back to his darkroom and develop the day's film and print proof sheets. Then there might be a dance to shoot later that night. 
Cameras were banned in the secret city. His was the only camera in a town of 75,000. And for a guy with ambition, his side hustle as a photographer was almost a full-time job on its own. There were many weddings each weekend. The fastest growing department at the hospital was the maternity ward. If you needed photos of your firstborn, Ed was the man. The speed and scale of Oak Ridge was unlike anything the country had ever seen. From the time the farmers were evicted until the day Japan surrendered was a mere 1,020 days. This top secret installation went from cows grazing pasture land to the fifth largest city in the state and one of the largest industrial complexes in the history of mankind. Splitting an atom was an astonishing new energy source and it was fully realized in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Timing, both good and bad, can be a terribly random thing. In December of 1938, two scientists in Germany discovered a uranium atom could be split and release a massive amount of energy. Barely eight months later, Germany invaded Poland and World War II started. The first perception of atomic power by the world would be during a war. General Dick Groves ran the Manhattan Project. He was a no-nonsense, impatient taskmaster. His second in command was Colonel Ken Nichols. They were hired in September of 1942. Things happened quickly. They made the decision to step up the process to condemn 60,000 acres of farmland west of Knoxville, Tennessee. They also obtained from the War Production Board a AAA priority rating. It was the highest rating possible. There were shortages of thousands of materials during the war. The Manhattan Project would be first in line for anything and everything. Another objective was to borrow from the U.S. Treasury 14,000 tons of silver for the industrial plants in Oak Ridge. That is equal to the weight of 9,000 cars. And finally, they also contracted with a uranium mine owner in the Belgian Congo for 1,250 tons of high-quality uranium ore. Dick and Ken completed these four vitally important objectives during the first four days on the job. In 18 months, they built the fifth largest city in the state. During the peak, a home was completed every 30 minutes. There were over 6,000 massive industrial machines separating two isotopes of uranium. Oak Ridge devoured 10% more electricity than New York City during the war. New York had over 7.5 million residents. Oak Ridge, about 75,000. For safety reasons, workers lived miles from the industrial sites. 
These were new experimental processes creating a new type of uranium. There were worries an accident would be catastrophic. So to ferry workers to and from the plants, they built the ninth largest bus system in the country. A bus arrived or departed from the main terminal every 60 seconds, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Even with the industrial plants, the speed of construction was head spinning. The problems were huge. For every 2,000 pounds of raw uranium, there was only 14 pounds of the precious uranium-235. The plants were named S50, K25, and Y12. The names were total gibberish. They were created to make sure absolutely nothing was conveyed to the workers or the outside world about the purpose of these plants. Normally, after a theory is proved out in the laboratory, a prototype is built to see if the idea is scalable. There was no time for that. K25 used a filter method. There was a 2% difference in the size of uranium-238 and the smaller uranium-235. A filter would have holes small enough that the larger 238 could not pass through it easily, but the smaller 235 could. A filter the size of your thumbnail would have over 15 million holes in it. When they started building K25, the scientists had not developed a filter which worked. The scientists just kept grinding out possible solutions until they developed one which worked. Much of what happened in Oak Ridge was based mostly on blind faith. Why such a rush? Only people in the highest echelons of the military, government, and science knew the horrible secret which kept all of them awake at night. Hitler had his own atomic weapons program. We knew almost nothing about it. But what was known was nightmarish. Hitler had a two-year head start. This was the original arms race. If Hitler got the weapon first, London would be gone. Moscow most likely too. If Hitler could get an airfield in Greenland, the entire east coast of the United States would be under threat. The resulting carnage would make the Holocaust look like a tiny blip on a moral radar screen. There were 75,000 workers in Oak Ridge. Only two to 300 workers knew the purpose of the giant industrial site. But all the workers were highly motivated to end the war. They had family and friends dying in distant lands. The loss of American life during World War II would equal a 9-11 attack every five days for three and a half years. From the bottom up, workers were pleading with their bosses, what can we do to end the killing? And from the top down, the leaders did their own pleading, faster, just work faster. Forces from the very top of the Manhattan Project, 
and the fears of workers on the bottom rung of the labor pool all came together in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, unlike anywhere else in the nation. The officials kept the purpose of this place secret, almost against all odds. But there were two aspects of the top secret project which could not be hidden from the workers. One was the scale of what was going on. Nobody knew what it was, but it was the biggest effort they had ever seen in their young lives. And it would be the biggest effort of their entire lives. The other aspect which could not be hidden was the speed of the effort. Everyone could see it was moving at a blistering pace. It seemed that housing and industrial plants were built almost overnight. These two elements, speed and scale, made the atmosphere electric. Throw into the equation youth and hormones, and it was the most amazing place in the country. The workers said it was the most exciting time of their lives and the scariest too. The terror and carnage of war was the backdrop for everything. You can't hide a town of 75,000 people. But what was going on out there? Folks in Knoxville wondered. In other military plants, the narrative was straightforward. Thousands of rail cars of raw materials would be shipped in and thousands of jeeps or tanks would come out. Or the locals could see thousands of newly finished planes taking off. No mystery at all. Oak Ridge was different. Thousands of rail cars delivered raw materials and nothing, absolutely nothing was coming out. Well, something was coming out, but nobody saw it. It was a single piece of gray-looking metal the size of a volleyball. It was made up of 90% uranium-235. Not thousands of volleyballs, but a single one. Over 75,000 workers were working desperately around the clock making a volleyball. And if they could make one, they might be able to make a second one. In 2020 dollars, they would spend $14 billion on a single 140-pound volleyball. Of course, if this was a Hollywood movie, the entire volleyball would be delivered to Los Alamos, New Mexico in a security convoy. There'd be 40 trucks and security guards with machine guns and American flags waving. It didn't happen that way though. As enough uranium was separated, a military officer dressed in a business suit would be given a sealed briefcase. Inside the lined case was two teacup sized containers with screw lids nestled in a special carrier. The officer would go to Knoxville, get on a public train, and travel to Chicago. At the train depot, he would meet another officer dressed as a businessman. He would take the briefcase and get on a train bound for Albuquerque, New Mexico, and then he would drive to Los Alamos. 
The officer going to Chicago from Oak Ridge never knew where the briefcase was going. And the other officer never knew where the briefcase came from. Sometimes workers went to Knoxville to shop or eat. And they were trained how to answer questions from nosy natives. So, what are you making out there anyway? Uh, about 85 cents an hour. Um, what do you do out there anyway? I'm in project management. How many people work out there? Oh, about half of them. The obsession with secrecy and security was well-founded. Officials were deeply concerned that the Germans would learn the extent of the American efforts and would double down on their own program. Or, more likely, the Germans would infiltrate Oak Ridge and steal industrial secrets about American methods so it could aid their own work. When all workers were hired in Oak Ridge, they went through an eight-hour orientation. Six hours of it was keep your mouth shut, don't talk about your work to anyone, including your spouse. You could be fired and possibly go to prison for espionage. There were billboards everywhere in town which said shut up and do your job. Every six months, there was a refresher course in case you couldn't get the message the other four times. Outgoing mail was opened, read, and portions were blacked out if necessary. One of the tragic unintended consequences of these dictates was that nobody kept diaries or journals. Workers were petrified that military police would find them if they searched their homes. Oral histories done decades after the war will be the only record of the memories of these ignored heroes. There was something very conflicted about working and living in Oak Ridge during the war. At work, there was little to no job security. There were prohibitions, procedures, protocols, and security standards. Asking too many questions was a sure way to be fired. Of all the people who left the Manhattan Project, 40% of them were fired. But officials were greatly concerned that the workers would up and quit in droves. They were all strangers. Many of them were away from home and family for the first time. The secrecy graded some. All the rules at work put strains on others. Sometimes co-workers simply disappeared. The mythology was that they were reassigned to a radar tracking station in Alaska. You didn't dare ask about workers who disappeared. It would bring you unwanted attention. Because of all these strains, 
Outside of work, officials were determined to keep the workers happy so they wouldn't quit. To the extent possible, the workers were pampered. Movie theaters were packed, dance halls were full, because most of the workers were working rotating shifts each week, athletic leagues competed around the clock. There was a symphony orchestra made up of volunteers. A playhouse was open, which is still in operation today. If you wanted a special interest club for a hobby, you would tell authorities and they would do the publicity. At one time, there were eight different orchid clubs. Ed Westcott created a vivid record of the social history of the town. He took thousands of pictures of the industrial plants. Honestly, these are photos only a scientist could love. A machine is a machine. But photos of folks living their lives was where Ed's talents really came to the fore. Those photos tell a human story, and Ed was a master at that part of the story. There was a sense of expectation in the summer of 1945 among some of the Oak Ridge workers. Some workers got a heads up from their bosses. Something was afoot. Certainly, Ed Westcott knew something was up. It was toward the end of July of 1945, and he was instructed to print hundreds of copies of 18 of his photographs for press packets to be sent out to hundreds of newspapers across the country, and even some foreign newspapers. He printed thousands of photographs. Ed had, in the last few months, pieced together what was happening in Oak Ridge. He went everywhere and saw almost everything. He wasn't totally sure, but he was mostly sure. In late August of 1945, he was sent rolls of film from military photographers in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. This was after Japan had surrendered. He was the only one allowed to develop the film and print the photographs. It took him three days. Armed guards were posted outside his darkroom door the entire time. President Truman gave a midday address to the nation on August 6th of 1945. He revealed that the United States had developed a devastating new weapon called an atomic bomb. They had dropped an atomic weapon on Hiroshima, Japan. It was equal to 15,000 tons of dynamite. Almost as an aside, Truman said the weapon had been developed in Pasco, Washington, in Los Alamos, New Mexico, and in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, outside of Knoxville. That is how almost all the workers learned about what they had been working on. Hugh Barnett joined the Manhattan Project while its offices were actually in Manhattan, in New York City. 
He learned the purpose of the Manhattan Project his first day at work. He moved to Oak Ridge in 1943. In the summer of 1945, it was obvious to Hugh that the project was closing in on the amount of uranium-238 they needed for a weapon. He carpooled out to K-25 each day with four other workers. They all knew the purpose of their work in Oak Ridge. August 14th was Hugh Barnett's 29th birthday. Hiroshima was bombed on August 6th and Nagasaki on August 9th. The entire country was on pins and needles expecting the surrender of the Japanese. Hugh was not celebrating his birthday that day, but he was also on pins and needles too. His wife had gone into labor with their first child. They were at the hospital. It was three blocks from the main town site called Jackson Square. There was no air conditioning, so the windows were open to fight the intense summer heat. Hugh's first son was born at 7 p.m. The commotion in the hospital room subsided, but Hugh and Shirley could hear distant cheering outside their room. Hugh wondered how word had spread so quickly about the birth of Lee. President Truman, in a nationwide radio address at 7 p.m., announced Japan had surrendered in that World War II, after 65 million deaths, was finally over. There was great joy in the hospital room that night and in the entire nation too. More than a million sing and dance in the streets in the biggest celebration the Windy City has ever seen. Joy is unconfined. Meanwhile, in Jackson Square, three blocks away. Ed Westcott was taking photos of Oak Ridgers celebrating the ending of the war. There is a famous photograph of a huge crowd celebrating, looking directly at Ed, who was standing in the bed of a truck. Many held up the Knoxville newspaper with a half-page headline which shouted out, War Ends. With that photo, Ed Westcott must have wondered what the future held for him. His job assignment was essentially done. With that photograph, Ed had brought to a close the most important work of his professional life. On that night, he finished the most important photographic archive of 20th century American history. On that night, Ed Westcott was 23 years old. As it turned out, Ed stayed in Oak Ridge as a government photographer for another 20 years. In 2017, he was nominated for the Presidential Medal of Freedom our nation's highest civilian honor. In 2016, the Honor Air Program in Knoxville, which is 25 miles from Oak Ridge, 
decided to expand their definition of a veteran to include Manhattan Project workers who worked in Oak Ridge. The program flies over 130 veterans each trip to Washington, D.C. to tour the war memorials. This trip is done at no charge to the veterans. They leave in the morning and are back in Knoxville the same evening. It's a long day for all the veterans and the volunteers who make it all possible. In October of 2016, four Oak Ridgers took the trip. Among them was Ed Westcott. I was not there for the send-off, but I was there that evening for their welcome home, along with thousands of other people. Warren Buffett, along with Bill Gates, were interviewed by Charlie Rose in 2017. It was a set-up question, but fascinating nonetheless. Charlie asked Warren what he thought was the second most important document in American history. Warren said, of course, the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence were most important, but Buffett said the second most important document was written by two immigrants to President Roosevelt in 1939. They weren't really immigrants, but rather refugees from Nazi Germany. One, not quite as well known, was Leo Szilard, a brilliant physicist from Hungary. The other letter writer was a refugee from Germany and happened to be the most famous scientist in the world, Albert Einstein. In Buffett's estimation, these two refugees saved the world. The two told Roosevelt that Hitler was working on developing atomic weapons and Germany had a huge head start. If Germany won this arms race, Nazism and Japanese militarism would rule most of the globe. The letter got to the White House in August of 1939, and eight weeks later the earliest version of the Manhattan Project was created. And a very special thanks to Richard Cook for that remarkable storytelling, and Richard is the author and compiler of Ignored Heroes of World War II, the Manhattan Project Workers of Oak Ridge, Tennessee, an oral history with quotes from the workers who were eyewitnesses to one of the most important events of the 20th century. And no doubt Hitler's regime of hate drove away the very talent that would come into America and kill the German war machine. And by the way, Ed Westcott on March 29, 2019 passed. He was still taking photographs a week before his death. And you can find his photos by punching in Ed Westcott and the words Oak Ridge into your search engine. There are thousands of pictures out there taken by this one man. A remarkable story. Again, special thanks to Richard Cook and great job on this by Robbie. 
our Cracker Jack producer here at Our American Stories. The story of a town, Oak Ridge, Tennessee, a photographer, Ed Westcott, and, my goodness, Richard Cook in his own way. It's his own story. You don't spend your life on this without it being your own story, too, here on Our American Stories. <laughs> 